For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into the image, an image made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions for even their women exchanged the natural use of what is against nature. Likewise, also the men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust one for another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. But we should understand as Paul is setting forward the gospel, the good news to us, but now in order to bring the whole argument of the gospel to us, he has to bring it against the backdrop of the ugliness of sin. And his first view of sin that he gives us here is in a sense a picture of the state of society that the people were living in that time. And we're going to see that the people are going to think, well, I'm above that. Uh, you know, that might be how they're living, but it's not how I am living. And so Paul is meticulously going to show that this is not only true of society as a whole, but it The ultimate is something that's true and pegged in the heart of every human being, apart from what God does. And we'll get to that in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18, in which he raises the indictment now that he's making towards all society, towards each individual man. And the final conclusion is that, having understood all of it, all of us should sense ourselves guilty before God. This morning, we're going to look at the social picture. And as we look at it, there may be a sense in which you'll feel a little aloof. Oh, well, that's what's wrong with our society. Well, just a fair warning of what's coming in the messages following this. Right? Paul's going to dial it down to the individual heart and demonstrate our need of the gospel. Verses 18 to 32 is quite an accurate description of the moral state in which the world was as Paul is writing the people in Rome. He's describing something of the conduct and the behavior and the moral status that is in Rome in that hour and that day. Anyone who was reading it and listening to it would shake their heads and say, uh-huh. We're seeing this. We're observing these things. And yet, as we read it, we also see that it's a, it's a rather accurate description. 
of the moral state of the world in which we're living in as well. It's a picture of the social affairs of our hour and our day and this kind of state of the social and moral life of the communities has cycled through human society ever since the dawn of civilization. There have been times in which the moral condition has been not so bad. It's been on the upswing. And then there are other times when the moral condition seems to be in a downright plummet. And today this cycle of moral corruption seems to be mixing more and more broadly and more and more deeply throughout all of our known world. Throughout history there's always been corruption in various societies, among various peoples, to varying degrees, in varying places, at various times. But the Bible seems to indicate in the last days the corruption will be like a cloud or fog that extends all over the earth. It's in every place and every point and at all times. And it's quite universal. And this, this seems to be, at least to our minds, where our world is heading today. So it's not surprising that many individuals, including myself, are asking, is this the last hour? Is this the time when the Lord Jesus will return? But one of the questions we have to be asking is, how did we get to this point? How do we come about to this moment in time? And why is these expressions of moral decay taking shape in our society and also taking shape in our world? And if we knew the answer to that question, it may be that we'd be wise in seeking God and applying responses to our circumstance and situation that would even help find our way out of the mess that we're in, the moral mess that we're in. At least we might know better how to pray and how to intercede for the generation in which we live in. We might know how best to answer those who are around us who are also seeing these things and are ruining the collapse of the society that they had once known and enjoyed. And so the question is, how do we get to this place of moral decay throughout society? And the first answer is basically this. And I'm going to give you three suggestions of how we get there. Three regressions or points at which we descend further and further into moral decay. And the first one is simply this. Number one, there's a departure into moral darkness that begins by walking away from the light of God. So the first step or first point of departure into a place of moral darkness in our societies and in your life personally is that you walk away from the light of God. It's the first step into spiritual and moral decay. It's a step away from God. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, John is going to talk about in that very first chapter this revelation of the glory of the person of Jesus Christ. But in the presence of the revelation of Jesus Christ, John will very quickly pivot to a revelation of our own sinfulness and our sins. Even the nature that humans have to deny that they're sinners and deny they have any sin. And John says that you can't hold to that argument if you come into the light of who God is. And so in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, the apostle tells us, God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. And by stating that, John is wanting us to understand that God is a God of absolute moral purity. God is a God of absolute moral perfection. He's a God of utter and complete, concentrated holiness. And in saying this, he's making it known to us that God himself, when he comes into our reality and when he comes before us, and when we stand before him, the effect of that is that God reveals to us what is good and right and what is pure and what is true and what is righteous. And as a result, he also reveals to us what is not good and what is not right and what is not pure 
what is not true and what is not righteous, he shows to us our sins. The Lord Jesus spoke about the impact of the divine light as it comes upon individuals in John chapter 3. Just very shortly after John 3.16 that we all have memorized as children, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believed in him should not perish but have everlasting life. In verse 19 and 20, the Lord Jesus says this. And this is the condemnation that light has come into the world. And men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light. It does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. The light that men reject ultimately is God. They turn from him. They don't want to be subject to his presence. They reject God because God's presence and the manifestation of God's presence exposes them to their sins. It exposes their evil passions. Really, this is not an uncommon phenomenon. Most of us know the desire at some point in time in our life to avoid persons who show us our sins and our faults. We don't like to be around them. We don't want to think about those things. We'd like to put out of our minds. And so, in the same way, a human being will avoid God. Steer clear of him. The spiritual and moral condition of our age starts with an individual's and with humanity's flight from the light, with humanity's run away from the presence of God. Although they knew God, Paul says in verse 21 here, they didn't glorify God as God. Now that's kind of an interesting statement. What Paul is saying is that at the starting point, individuals and human society begins with a knowledge of God. They have some understanding of God. It tells us that deep down, embedded in the conscience of every individual who is born into this world, they're born with, you might say, a sensitivity or a recognition that God is and that God is presence and that God provides and that God creates and God blesses and it, it resides within them and that the nature of the individual as well as society, because society is just a conglomerate of individuals, is to suppress that knowledge. They even codify that suppression of that knowledge because it begins to reveal their own sin. When we're sharing the gospel with individuals, one of the questions we like to ask them is, do you believe in God? And Most of the time, actually, people will say yes. And then you might ask them, well, what do you believe God is like? And very often they'll give you some answer that is so mystical, it's almost beyond conception what they're saying. It's some foggy, ethereal image or picture of some distant God who floats the air like some energy or some current or is moving throughout all of nature, and there's no point to it. There's no beginning and end to it. There's no lesson to learn from it. It's just something that we all somehow indefinitively all kind of reside in. And, you know, when they say things like that, the question you ask them is this, because what they've done is their lives, have, <laughs> their lives have accumulated a series of compromises, moral compromises usually, in which it's become necessary for them to develop some image of God that they can be comfortable around, that somehow will afford them to continue in the pathway they're following or live with themselves. But then you ask them this question, well, let me ask you, when you were a little child, what were your first concepts of God? What were the first things that you thought God might be like? Well, then all of a sudden come out these answers that are very elementary. They're actually quite truthful. Oh, well, he was watching over me, and he heard my prayers, and he protected me, and he had made me and created me. And, well, those are the elementary 
expressions of God to the heart of man that man suppresses. The more he falls into sin, the more he has to develop some profuse or some uh, diluted picture or image of God. But here's what Paul's telling us. Paul is telling us that at the beginning, what is true of the individual is also true of the human race. The man began with the knowledge of God. Remember, Adam and Eve knew God. They knew God as the source of their blessing. They knew God as the one who was their creator and the provider and their blesser. And they walked with God in the garden. But as they turned their face to pursue their own self-will and their own designs and their own sin, they had to turn away from God. They had to even hide from Him and run from Him. And what Adam and Eve did in the garden is what all mankind has done. There's actually a theory that was developed a number of years ago. It was kind of like when Darwinism was kind of having its influence on all the different theories. And so there was a, a Darwinian theory of the development of religion as well. And the idea was that as human societies grew and developed from some primitive dark past, so did their idea of God. And so when there were these primitive people that were going out as hunters and gatherers who worked among the stones and in the trees picking their mushrooms and things like that, well, they, they developed an idea of God that was kind of like, there was this animistic religious experience where there, gods were, there were spirits in the rocks and there were spirits in the trees. And, and then as they began to gather and cloister together more in families, they, well, they formed a kind of ancestor worship. And that was the next progression in the religion of man. And, and then after that began to form more into tribal units and to broader states where they developed larger and larger cities or city-states, they became polytheist. There was the God of their region or their area or their city-state. And, and then when nations began to grow and those nations began to present themselves as having potential to have whole power over all the land, well, then they became monotheist. That's when they began to believe that there was just this one God. And so that was the theory that was put out about the development of religion. And Paul's actually telling us this exact opposite. There wasn't this groping for some understanding and they were somehow progressing in an enlightened state where they came to know God better and better over time or to come to some more pure and clear understanding of what God was like. He's saying, no, they began. Human society began with a clear understanding of who God was. And because of their sin, they didn't progress into enlightenment. They ran from the light of who God was. It's what society has done. It's what the individual has done. And oh, by the way, once the theory was posited, it was published in all kinds of books. But eventually, eventually, you know, they began to go back into these primitive tribes and go back into all these places to begin to study what was underneath all the religions. And what they found is in every place, the, the oldest and most ancient expressions of belief in them was a belief in a creator God who made everything. It was the oldest idea they had fixed in all of these different places, even in the most primitive place. They had to call it the sky god phenomenon, right? It was there. It was just demonstrating what Paul is telling us here, that God has made himself known, that God has impressed himself upon mankind, that man didn't move from ignorance and being unimpressed by the reality of God, but he knew God and he was conscious of God and he refused to acknowledge God as God, and so he turned away from him. This is all due to the inherent rebelliousness of man, his desire to serve himself and live in freedom from the revelation, the powerful revelation of God upon his life and the constraint that it might put upon him. So although they knew God, he says, they glorified him not as God nor were thankful. And here's another expression of this suppressing of and this putting aside and this flight from who God is. He says they did not glorify him as God. They did not glorify him as God. It's another way to so the human being suppresses 
The idea and concept of God is that he won't glorify God as God. Here's an example for you. We've got a man named John Smith. He lives for many years estranged from his mother. And then one day he reconnects with his mother again. And he arranges in politeness to have her come and visit his home. And so she arrives at his home. And he greets her at the door along with his children. And she visits him in the home. And he's very courteous to her. He, he shakes her hand at the door. He asks if she'd like to come in and sit down. She sits down. He asks if she'd like to be seated in a certain place. He waits for her to be seated before he seats himself. He, he asks if she'd want something to drink. And she does. And he gets something to refresh her. He's very polite with her in all of his conversations. He introduces her to all of his children as Mrs. Smith. And they have a polite conversation with her as well. He's very polite all the way through the whole encounter. As polite he would be with anyone else all the way to the point in which he sees her to the door and thanks for coming and visiting him. He's treated her as well as he would have treated any other person. But the problem is that John Smith didn't treat her as his mother. So far he didn't glorify his mother as mother. That's what people do with God. Well, they acknowledge God. They know he's there. They don't ignore him entirely, but he's there and they know he's in the world and they sometimes find expressions they make to him and they're polite and they even go to church and provide little acts of reverence at times. But in all of it, in all their decorum, they're not glorifying God as God. People around the world recognize that there's a God who has made them, but they don't live for him and they don't commune with him and they're not thankful to him for all their blessings. Instead, they construct for themselves all kinds of intermediate gods, and idols that receive their attention and their focus and They don't glorify God as God in their lives. And this is the condition of people in our age, and it's been the condition of people throughout the ages. These individuals can crowd our churches and engage themselves in the weekly rituals of the church. And all of that crammed between them and God are all kinds of other things that they live for and that they follow and that they obey and that capture their attention and their primary focus. And as a result, they're not glorifying God as God. Their lives are ultimately a flight from the light. They suppress and push away the influence of God upon their consciousness. And that's the first step. The first step is we move away from God. We move away from his presence. Here's the next two steps I want us to look at. Let's go back to verse 18 of Romans 1. And we're going to find a clue here. First it is, he describes at the beginning of this verse that these individuals, they are those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. But now he reveals two other steps that take place as a result of that suppression. He says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And you might circle those two words, ungodliness and unrighteousness. We might understand ungodliness in this way. It's a reference to the lack of a religious spirit or impulse in human beings. An ungodly person is a person who lives with a diminishing fear or awe of God in their lives. They have a diminishing sense of a holy otherness around them. And so they have no deep penetrating or guiding awe for their creator. An awe that would somehow influence their choices and their conduct and their character. That's ungodliness. You might take the first five commandments of the Ten Commandments and you might stack that under the idea of ungodliness this lack of referencing yourself to the revelation of God and who God is. And then he says there's unrighteousness as well. And unrighteousness is, we might put their last five commandments of the Ten Commandments and put that underneath unrighteousness. 
It's the idea of a lack of moral standards and moral conduct among individuals. An unrighteous person is someone who lives to satisfy their own selfish impulses, does what is right in their own eyes, does what makes them feel good and satisfies themselves, and doesn't do it in consideration of others, and begins to look at other individuals as commodities to be consumed for their own satisfaction, as obstacles to be navigated, or things through which they provide their own pleasures and their own desires. So let me put these two notions together. The second step away into moral decay is very quick from this idea of the fact that you run from the light of God. The next one is you step away from a responsiveness to the presence of God or God's reality. For lack of a better word here, it's a step away from a religious spirit or religion. It's ungodliness. You see, the human being first runs from God But what remains in that individual, whether he runs from God or not, is a a prejudice in his mind that God is still there. You know, you can run from God and you can drive away from God as fast as you can, but you keep seeing him in the rearview mirror. He just keeps showing up in places. He keeps haunting your consciousness. You think about him even though you don't want to think about them. And so as they're moving from God, they're trying to distance themselves from that plague, you might say, of God consciousness. But it goes with them. And oftentimes, by the way, this consciousness of God is underscored for us in the relatives we have and the family members we have and having grandma and grandpa around who used to live a different life and had a different perspective on life or having your sainted mother around you. And when I was a little boy, my mother would ask me questions like, do you want to be doing that when the Lord Jesus returns? That was a good question. Right? Do you want to be sharing this activity with the Lord Jesus right now? That was a good question too. But there was actually... A more practical question for me, which was, do I want to be doing this with my mother around? (laughs) Do Do I want her to see these things? Do I want her to know these things? A person can run from God, but he can't entirely escape this kind of prejudice because there are people around him that remind him of those things. His sated mother might remind him of that. His mother's going to die usually before he dies. And so with it, oftentimes, are the very presence and the very influences that weigh upon them and bring back to their mind this sense or this awareness or this consciousness of the divine, what slowly begins to dry up is with this, when you lose this consciousness of God, is you lose a sense of the sacred. You lose a sense of the otherness or the absoluteness that stands over your life. You lose a sense of reverence, not only for God, but for all others as well. A sense that there's something wonderful sense in which somehow the divine glows in what's around you. So those first ten commandments are the commandments that you begin to lay aside. Worship God and worship Him only. Don't make any idols of Him. Don't take God's name in vain. Keep a day and set it aside to honor Him. Honor your mom. Honor your father and your mothers. Those who remind you of these things and underscore the sense of the divine. Jesus spoke of this godliness and this life of godliness as the first command that was given to us to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our minds. It's a command into godliness, a God consciousness. But in the moral decay in which we flee God and we run from the light, eventually God gives over our consciousness as well. So we increasingly lose our sense of God's presence. It becomes less and less distinct even in the rearview mirror as we're going away from him. And so is the next 
step into moral decay. The first step is man steps or he leaves the presence of God or he flees from God. The second step is man loses this religious orientation of life or he loses a sense of the divine over life. And the third step is man then loses his moral compass altogether. He crashes through one moral roadblock after another in his way into a pit of destruction and decay. And now he's just filled with all unrighteousness. He doesn't follow the second great command either. (laughs) Once you stop following the first great command to love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and strength, the next thing that you do is you stop loving your neighbor as yourself. You stop seeing them as someone important. You know what happens now when we don't like an individual and the way they live or we don't prefer their politics or whatever it is and we begin to judge them or we see moral behavior we don't like we say, that person's not even human, he's an animal. Don't say it. That's the degeneration that takes place when you deny the divine. That individual is made in the image of God. They're to be referenced and understood as someone who has about them something of the broken, glorious expression of someone made in God's image. There ought to be a sense of awe about that. I remember the first time that I was in Bogota, Colombia. Um, not Bogota, Colombia. I was in La Paz, Bolivia. We're about 12,500 feet above sea level. And so the first three days that we're there, basically we're told to stay in a hotel room and we can't leave. We're taking these pills that will thin our blood out so we can walk out on the street without passing out or fainting, right? And so... Uh, We're sitting there for a couple days, and I've got a big window in my hotel, and I'm looking out on the main street of La Paz, and I'm watching all the people of La Paz walk by, and you know, they're not built like us. They've been living up in that thin air for such a long time. They're kind of short. They are barrel-chested. You know, they're built to process the thin altitude and oxygen that's out there, and they're moving back and forth and they're, they're wearing all of their wardrobe on themselves because they start off in the morning and it's quite cold and as the day goes by and it heats up because of the sun that's over them, they, they start shedding their wardrobe but then as it starts getting cold again, they put it on and, and I'm watching life before me. I'm, one of the scenes I'm watching is a, a little boy who's trying to shine shoes on a corner but he's actually taking territory from some older man that's claiming it and so the older man keeps coming and kicking him and chasing him off and the little boy will run off and then I can see the other man shining shoes, and as soon as he starts shining shoes, I can see the little boy creeping back and trying to shine someone's shoes as quickly as he can while he's looking at him, watching the whole battle that's going on, and it's really quite entertaining, but here's this odd world I'd never seen with these odd people I'd never seen, and then all of a sudden I was struck with this thought, a wonderful thought that drove me into worship. These people are made in the image of God. They're creating God's image. They have instincts and impulses, however corrupted they are, that are driven by something divine within them. It was wonderful to me and it was awesome to me. When you turn from God and you flee God and then you put out of your mind the consciousness of God trying to penetrate into your life and that becomes dull and your sense of the divine in the presence of life removes from you, then all of a sudden you don't see people as divine. You see them as Animals to be used and consumed for your own benefit and glory. You put them on the level of every other created being. Well, you don't even consider them created beings. Every other evolved being with no value beyond a microbe. Then you begin to justify all kinds of ways of using them and satisfying yourself. And you exalt yourself over them. Strangely, you exalt yourself over them. Even though you might consider yourself just like them. Then you just get into all kinds of unrighteousness that 
you satisfy yourself with because that's what it's there for. It's just stuff to be consumed for your own sake. Let me reverse the order of this for a moment and point our way back to a moral life. In order to come back to a moral life in society, you have to begin with God. You have to move on to think about Him and to turn your eye upon Him and you have to come back into His presence confessing all the way and not turning away from what He shows you and how He exposes you and however the intense the heat might get when you come before Him. You come into His presence and you look at Him and then you train yourself to always default to Him and His person and His presence and His will and His design and what He does then is He begins to quicken and awaken your conscience so that it becomes cultivated by this, for lack of a better word, this religious mindset of godliness where God begins to invade all the areas of your life and you begin to restore a sense of awe and reverence for Him and a sense of awe and reverence for those He's made. Those He's made. And by the way, if you want to find out if you yourself have crept away from God in His presence, tell me what your attitude is towards other human beings in their worst moment. What label you want to put upon them. They're made in God's image. They're made in His image. He loves them still. He designed them for a purpose to know Him and be with Him and enjoy Him. They're squandering it. But he loves them still. You come before God. You let God begin to stir up within your heart a sense of the reverence and awe that you would have before your creator. You let that begin to spread over the way that behavior begin to spread over the way you see other men and other women. And as a result, you want to live before them in a righteous way that honors them as those whom God has made. The choices you make about what is right and wrong will be influenced but what you know about God and what you feel in His presence. And that's how you get there. But here's the way our society has been moving over a period of time. We've increasingly rejected the notion of God. At the same time, we've attempted to maintain a spirit, a religious spirit about something. We've taken the attitudes we have towards God and we tried to lay that same attitude upon institutions instead. So we can still have this sense of awe and reverence and religion, but you can't sustain that very long. It lingered for a little while because it lingered with the past generation, but eventually this idea of God diminished and dismissed from our minds began to dismiss and diminish an idea of anything of sanctity of life or of people around you. And so now we celebrate the destruction of life. We fall into all kinds of forms of unrighteousness. We lose our religious impulse and all we have left now is to live before others. We even say, well, we, we don't, now we don't need religion. We don't need God. We don't need the sense of religion. We just need to follow certain ethical rules. We just need to be good and we need to be moral. And we'll let the state even decide what those rules are. Well, we won't be able to maintain them, whatever the state decides. We won't be able to maintain it. I point out to you that the two great classic empires were Greece and Rome. And what they both exalted were moral ideas, fine ethical systems of law and justice, but they were practical atheists. You know, when Pilate said to the Lord Jesus, what is truth? He wasn't really asking a question as stating his creed and the creed that was common among all the leaders of Rome. They didn't believe there was any ultimate truth. The state was the truth. You followed their laws. You obeyed what they had set down. You followed their ethics and their rules, and that was what was true. That's all we needed to allow them to establish those things. We don't need God. We don't need religious sensitivities. We just need the state to tell us what we should do and what we shouldn't do. And, but I'll remind you that both the 
Greeks and the Romans and their societies collapsed as a result of complete moral degeneracy and decay. They couldn't sustain it. Let me read you a quote from Emil Brumer, who wrote after the end of the Second World War in his book, Man in Revolt. Listen to these words. The feeling for the personal and the human, which is the fruit of faith, may outlive for a time the death of the roots from which it has grown, but this cannot last very long. As a rule, the decay of religion works out in the second generation as moral rigidity, and in the third generation as a breakdown of all morality. Humanity without religion has never been a historical force capable of resistance. Even today, severance from the Christian faith, whenever it has been of some duration, works out in the dehumanization of all human conditions. The wine of life has been poured out, and the dregs alone remain. That's what we're talking about. History underscores what the Bible has declared to be true here. Departure from God leads to a departure from godliness, which leads to a departure from all righteousness, and society is lowered into increasingly deeper levels of unrighteousness because they've forsaken God and rejected his influence upon their life. Now, even the atheist and the agnostic is realizing the, the negative effect of this. And so it's interesting, if you go and look at some of the blogs now, the atheists and the secularists are calling for the rest of us, as Christians, to get a little bit more religious. <laughs> They're calling for us to get back into our churches and to kind of pump up the volume of religiosity in our society. They're also appealing to moral arguments all the time. Listen to the news and see if there's not an underpinning of a moral argument that's always being made because they're desperate. They're desperate to somehow reestablish some sense of order in their lives, but they're starting at the wrong point. They're even encouraging us somehow to get prayer back in our schools. They're wanting God to be invoked in our pledges. They're stunned by the anarchist rule in our world and the social progressivism that actually isn't progressing whatsoever. And they're, they're seeing the attempt to erase all the traces of the influences that religion bore upon our society to make us and gave us the freedoms that we have. And they recognize that. They can put together the dots. And so they're fighting. They're fighting to keep God on the books. Let's get God back in the books somehow. Maybe it'll help us out. A lot of us feel the exact same way. We're afraid for our nation. We see the influence of setting aside this pure good commitment to God as the center of all things and we're seeing what it does to our society and it concerns us and it bothers us but I just, just point out to you here's not the way we need to do this first they're saying let's get some morality in place here and then you know what let's kind of get a little bit let's up, up the volume of religion and let's not work our way back to a better way of living but it won't happen it won't be quick enough either what we need is an experience with God. We need to meet God. We need to encounter Him. We need to come before Him. We also, as a church, need to come before God not primarily to benefit our society, not because we're sad at where our society is going. God is, after all, still God, and God will be worshipped for His own sake. Neither were they thankful, and they did not glorify Him. What does God want? He wants to be glorified. He wants to be recognized for who He is. He wants us to bow before him and yield before him and love him and surrender all our being to him. And he wants us to say something like what Job said, though he slay me, though he slay my society, still I will trust him. Take the world, but give me Jesus. 
Give me Jesus. You can have all the world. Give me Jesus. That's what he wants. When the church has that kind of mentality, when the Christian has that kind of impulse driving within him, when we get back to the first point, not fleeing from God, not searching all things between us and God, but just being with Him and before Him and loving Him and knowing Him and letting Him fill us and purify us and wanting to glorify Him in all that we do, whether we eat or we drink or whatever we do, glorifying Him. Well, then we're reestablishing the first point, the point at which our lives are built and the point in which the lives around us can be built, the point at which reaching out our society can be restored. Meeting God. Meeting God. And being with Him. And then, oh, letting the presence and the truth of God move into our being in such a way that it influences everything else that we see and everything else we do. And it, He layers His own sacred being over our lives and over the lives of those that we encounter. What happens is a restoration and a sharpening of our righteous responses to those around us. We move into a life of godliness and righteousness when we move into His presence. I think it's time for us to recognize that the flow of human nature is away from God. And so, if as a people we were to gather, we should pray that God would grant a spirit of repentance over our own lives and over our land. And God would cause us to seek His merciful presence. And God would revive our land do you know what the essence of revival is? Revival happens when God manifests himself to his people. When you're praying for revival, you're saying, God, make yourself known to me. Come before me. Come before me in such a way that I fall before you. And I only want to be with you. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. God, it's easy for us to become social commentators on the condition of our age to even satisfyingly enumerate the problems in the land that we live and see how they ventured in the wrong direction but oh God by your spirit turn that light inward into our own hearts where we have uh, been mesmerized and been uh, somehow calloused as well by the sounds and the sirens of our age to turn our eyes and our focus away from you and to long for and look for and dream of fulfillment and satisfaction in something other than your own presence in your own life. Help us know that the gospel is the gospel of reconciliation with you, to you. That is the fullest and best news that the ages could know, and that's the great news of all eternity with you in your presence. If it's true, and if we long for this, may we demonstrate it by pursuing to know you now. Help us to somehow discipline our thoughts and sequester our thoughts so that we might direct them into your presence and your life and find life before you and satisfaction before you. Keep us from just seeking you as a means to the end of our own satisfaction and the settling of our jangled nerves. Help us instead, O oh God, to come before you and seek you for your own sake.
for your own glory and your own honor. In that place, O oh God, what would you do with us? Use us in this way. It's like a, a compass, a magnetic pole for those around us, calling those around us to the same place in the same posture. Lord Jesus, live that by your Holy Spirit in our hearts. Answer this prayer, we pray in Jesus' precious name.